Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen change makers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guests today are Jane Souter and David Farrell of the Citizens' Assembly in Ireland. When I first heard about them and their Citizens' Assembly project from Billy Bragg in our live taping earlier this fall, I was really intrigued about how it would bring everyday citizens into a complex conversation about policy and political reform. Thanks to Jenna Spinelli at the McCourtney Institute at Penn State, I was able to connect with Jane and David directly about their ambitious project to bring citizens into the heart of debates over constitutional and political reforms and improve how the Irish representative system of democracy operates. Normally, politicians assume that all citizens want is more spending and less taxes. But in fact, this group of citizens, when they were presented with balanced evidence from right-wing economists and left-wing economists, trade union people, business and employer and industry type people, they agreed that in fact, in some areas, they should pay more taxes. And there were particular areas then that they really didn't want the government to cut spending in. So they came to compromises, they came to nuanced kind of policy positions. We'll be talking about the capacity of a deliberative form of democracy to bring people who have previously felt adrift and disconnected from power to become more interested in politics and feel more positive about their ability to influence it. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So when Ireland experienced a financial and economic meltdown in 2008-2009, people were really angry over the failings of the political system. And in response, you led a group of political scientists like yourself to start a project with a democratic participatory angle to ignite citizen involvement in democracy. Tell us a little bit about this project. How did you come up with this idea and how did it work out? We'd been part of a larger group that was talking about political reform generally in Ireland and how we could avoid repeated boom and busts and failure of the executive. And uh, David, he'd been part of the uh, convention in uh, British Columbia and Ontario, which had looked at uh, changing the electoral system. So he'd seen the the power of of these citizen assemblies and the rest of us knew about it academically. So along with a wide range of other reforms, we started advocating um, a little bit for for this in order to bring citizens back into the uh, policy process and in order for politicians to listen to citizens and not just to vested interests and so on, which uh, was largely the case up to that point. Why do you think it was crucial to bring citizens back into the debates? Well, you've got to think about it. This was the worst economic crisis in the history of our state. The, the economy was on its knees. Banks were closing down or fleeing from the state. Uh, people's unemployment levels were shooting through the roof. And you had a lot of anger. So it wasn't just an economic crisis. It was a political crisis. It was an existential crisis. And um, our rationale was really quite simple. It was rather than have angry citizens outside banging at the gates, why not bring a group of citizens into the room and into the heart of the process and let them have a say about what kind of Ireland we want for the future? Tell me about how you managed to pull this off, because in the US, this seems like an unlikely project. That's one of the things that, uh, like everybody says, there's always a large number of reasons why this can't be done. And one of it is it couldn't possibly happen here. So we were told, well, 
the Dutch and the Canadian citizens were very sensible, but there's no way that it could happen in Ireland, that Irish citizens couldn't be trusted with this or the problems were too intractable or we already had a citizen assembly and it was called our parliament. But in fact, one of the things that helped us most was actually an American philanthropist called Chuck Feeney. And he had an organisation called Atlantic Philanthropies, which had donated a lot to Irish universities, among a lot of other projects. And the people in the Atlantic Philanthropies really believed in what we were doing and, in fact, pushed us really hard to be as ambitious as we possibly could be with this project. We probably would have started a lot smaller and a lot more of a kind of an academic way. But they really pushed us to uh, bring it around the country, to talk to people and then to hold a, a nationwide deliberative event. Well, you clearly succeeded. How did you start? You formed mini publics. Uh, What are mini publics? Well, a deliberative mini public is a random selection at its heart. It's a random selection like jury duty, Uh, usually about 100 or so who come from all walks of life from all around the country, all, you know, different backgrounds and everything to be a sort of representative group of citizens in a way that parliament never gets to be. So what we did with the We the Citizens project was we went around the country in a series of roadshows, first of all. So we had seven roadshows all around Ireland where we were just saying to people in whatever town we turned up in, why don't you come to this hotel tonight, have a bowl of soup and talk about the future of Ireland and give us some of your thoughts. And this was a way in which we came up with an agenda for our National Citizens Assembly, our deliberative mini-public in Dublin in the summer of 2011. The main objective there was to test the method in Ireland so we could demonstrate that this could work in Ireland. So you had these seven town halls, so to speak, and you had this private funding, and then you found out through this process that this was a viable project and it could work. How did you persuade the government to say, okay, let's do this and we will listen to the results that you have found through this process. Okay, so the seven events that David was talking about there where we went around the country, those were self-selected people in town halls. So a lot of them would be, you know, concerned citizens, retired school teachers and civil servants and other people like that, the kind of people you'd expect at a town hall event. So what was really different about the National Citizen Assembly we had is that we went to a polling company and we asked them to find randomly selected people. So people who'd never volunteered for anything in their lives. In fact, one of the women hadn't voted in decades. And we sat them down for a weekend and we got them to think about issues like tax and spending, because as David said, we're in the middle of an existential crisis there with the, the IMF. We're actually running our fiscal policy at the time. And we got them to think about political reform. And in fact, they came up with really sensible suggestions. Normally, politicians assume that all citizens want is more spending and less taxes. But in fact, this group of citizens, when they were presented with balanced evidence from right-wing economists and left-wing economists, trade union people, business and employer and industry type people, they agreed that in fact, in some areas, they should pay more taxes. And there were particular areas then that they really didn't want the government to cut spending in. So they came to compromises, they came to nuanced kind of policy positions. So again with Atlantic, and we put together a really nice report and uh, they got us in front of the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister and their staffs. And we were able to show that these citizens who were in there came to sensible policy decisions, that they changed their minds, but really importantly, that they felt more trusting about the whole political process. They realised the kind of compromises 
that uh, politics required and that it couldn't be a black and white, take it or leave it kind of situation. So I think the politicians found that quite inspiring because they were used to citizens only coming to them when they needed something. They weren't used to listening to citizens about broader policy agendas. And uh, that's one of the reasons that they decided to give it a whirl themselves. Definitely very powerful to have this deliberative process. You mentioned just now that the people who participate get to hear both sides with experts. But one of the things that I read about also is that you have some neutral information that's just facts. And so who is actually the person who who puts together the fact sheet and who are the people who are arguing either side and then how do you go through the deliberative process? Sorry, there's so many questions. <laughs> but all this to say, like, how does it work? No, it's very good, very good questions, really important questions. And indeed, Jane and I and a couple of other colleagues who work in this area have have just produced a, a short document that tries to set down what we would say are the minimum standards that you need to have if you want to call this thing a deliberative mini public, a citizens assembly. So, as I said earlier on, you have the random selection to pick the members. So that stops uh, you know, people who only want to be there because they want to have something to say being there. You want you want to get regular citizens randomly who may not have had any involvement in politics before. You get them in the room. In our case, it's usually a hotel ballroom. They're set at tables, little round tables with about seven or eight at each table. And at each table then is a trained facilitator whose job it is to make sure that everyone has equal voice and that the conversation is respectful. And then you have these experts. So how do we pick the experts? So you need then some sort of structure around that. And, and what we've evolved in the Irish case is a, an expert advisory group, all the members of which all the names are well known. And these are generally people who are highly respected in their particular field. And the job of the expert advisory group is to go out and find appropriate experts. So in some instances, it'll be an expert who clearly is well informed and is very objective. That expert alone is able to talk about all the different nuances about the topic. But sometimes what you need to do is, as Jane suggested earlier, balance an expert against an expert, a left-wing economist versus a right-wing economist, or indeed, uh, you know, somebody who's against abortion versus somebody who's in favour of abortion. So you have the experts who come in and they provide briefing documents in advance for the members to read. They then make short presentations to the room they stay to answer any questions that are about things that people want to get more clarity on. And then they leave. And this is one of the crucial things about this, because the experts are there as witnesses just to provide evidence to the members. But it's the members who are in charge of coming up with the recommendations at the end of the day. Oh, it really makes you think about the issues in a way that's much deeper than at a glance. Do you think that the people who participated in the assemblies can come up with greater trust in the information that they receive in general, or does it make them, let's say, better consumers of what they read in the press? Well, I think that there's very clear evidence that for the people who actually participate, that their levels of knowledge and efficacy and trust all increase. But of course, that would be a, a very expensive way of upskilling, you know, individual citizens. What really matters is how what they say and the kind of reports that they produce, how those are received by the larger public. 
So we've done some limited research to try to understand how does the ordinary person in the street think about it. And from our, our initial evidence, what we find is you know, that they trust it more because they can see that people like them have actually evaluated and thought about it. So it hasn't just come from the usual partisan interest groups or the usual political parties. So it's this ability to go deeper and to know that you have to think more deeply about it and consider it from different angles. Right. So when you have this uh, result that comes out from the deliberative process and you disseminate this information to the public at large, what happens next? You sometimes feed it directly to the government and sometimes you have a referendum. And what is the mechanism? Obviously, the mechanism is going to vary from one case to the other. What happens in the Irish case is that the, the Citizens' Assembly is set up by government. It's run by civil servants and an independent chair appointed by the government. And it is tasked with coming up with recommendations on whatever topic it's been asked to consider. When it produces its report, that report then goes back to the parliament to discuss. As an example, when the Citizens' Assembly uh, two years ago discussed abortion, that went back to the parliament. The parliament then set up a special committee made up of representatives of all the political parties in parliament and deliberated on the recommendations of the Citizens' Assembly on abortion over a number of months. They then produced a recommendation that went to the parliament as a whole that there should be a referendum to liberalise the Irish abortion laws and to introduce a very liberalised regime on abortion as a result of that referendum. And the government accepted that and went ahead and held the referendum. So that's how we do it. If you don't have a referendum, what else could be done? Maybe it's not suited for every issue. Uh, absolutely. Like you only, We only have referendums on things that are going to be altered in our constitution. So we had a referendum on abortion because there was an absolute prohibition on abortion in the constitution. If abortion hadn't been mentioned in the constitution, it wouldn't have been a referendum. It would just have been legislation. So, for example, we had a citizen assembly on climate change, on what sort of things we needed to do to meet our commitments to try to tackle climate change, because Ireland is very much a climate change laggard. And this time, the Citizens' Assembly reported it made a number of recommendations. And once again, it went to the Parliamentary Committee and they again deliberated on it for a number of months. And then they came up with very similar recommendations that the Citizens' Assembly had. They put that to the whole Parliament, who then voted to declare a climate emergency. Now, that doesn't actually force the government to take any measures to, to tackle climate. But on the other hand, it does put pressure on politicians to hold them to account to say, look, the parliament has voted for a climate emergency and now you guys need to do something. So that's what happened in, in that way. Mm, fantastic. What have you learned from this process about the public that you didn't expect to learn and made you think differently about democracy? Well, to be honest, and I don't want to sound arrogant, but we didn't learn anything because we already knew in advance that this is what was going to happen. Our job, as we saw it in 2011 with We the Citizens, was to persuade the politicians and media that this could work in Ireland and that it was worthwhile and that you could trust the citizens. This is what we consistently said. And we were laughed out of court back in 2011, but I think less so today. If anything, I think the thing that really has been instructive in these Irish experiences is the impact on the politicians 
And I think that's often a dimension that's underplayed, that, you know, the extent to which the politicians are being informed by the citizens in the Citizens' Assembly, and it's helping the politicians to go down that difficult path, particularly we saw it in the case of abortion. We had prominent conservative politicians standing up in our parliament, in our Congress, effectively saying that they were persuaded to change their views on abortion in the light of the evidence that they'd read or heard that was presented to the Citizens' Assembly. Wow, that's so impressive. I love it. What about you, Jane? What do you think? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'd agree with David. So the the citizens totally lived up to our expectations. So I was delighted about that and delighted that they managed to come to sort of all these different policy conclusions that eventually led the way for the rest of the citizens to follow them. And like David, I think it's great how we can see now that politicians can look at citizens in a different way. So this was, you know, one of the first times that politicians had really talked to citizens about deep policy issues. And the other thing where I think it affects is large parts of the media, because a lot of journalists were really, really cynical about this in the beginning. And some still are, naturally enough. But a lot of journalists, particularly those who work on kind of social affairs and more general reporting, the ones who actually spend time in the assembly and watch citizens deliberating, I think a lot of their scepticism fell away. And a good few of them have said it, that this was really powerful, seeing these ordinary citizens who weren't being paid, spending a whole weekend in a hotel away from their friends and family in order to talk about really quite complicated policy issues to really want to put in time for their country in that way. So I think a lot of people found it very inspiring to see that these citizens were willing to work like this. Yeah, indeed. It turns out that empowering citizens works. That's something that we should be doing everywhere. Yeah, who knew? <laughs> who knew, right? Who knew? So in essence, how has this citizens' assembly process strengthened democracy in Ireland in your eyes? I mean, we wouldn't want to over-egg this. There's a lot about our democracy that's far from perfect. And we have a lot of the warning signs of things coming down the road that's, that you guys are experiencing now in the United States. You know, racism, extremism, particularly on the right, and, and all of that sort of thing. There's a lot that still needs fixing here. But I think what this shows is that Ireland is a bit of a beacon. We've had two of these. We're about to have a third, and then there's going to be a fourth a whole series of citizens' assemblies. Other countries are learning from our experience. I was in Edinburgh only last weekend at the launch of the Scottish Citizens' Assembly where the constitutional minister for the Scottish government in, in the opening speech praised the Irish cases as, as an example that they want to follow in Scotland. So Ireland has been a beacon in showing that there is a route. You know, there's a lot of talk about democracies in peril, democratic decline. And I think a lot of that talk ignores the fact that democracies also innovate. And it may take a long time and it may not be perfect. And we may have a lot of rocky, rocky roads to go down before we get things right. But the Irish experience is showing that through innovation, through the use of citizens' assemblies, where you're bringing regular citizens into the room, that perhaps we have a way through this dreadful morass of democratic problems. So as an ordinary American citizen, what would you advise for us to do if you wanted to follow your example? Well, David and I were over in Pennsylvania in College Park a month or so ago. There was a lot of people talking to us about it then. And one of the things that uh, we most often heard, I think, from regular Americans was, do you think we could do something about gun control? You know, gun control is somewhere where 
according to a lot of polling, it seems, the citizens are well ahead of the politicians. A lot of vested interests were preventing politicians from really listening to citizens. So I'd have thought that uh, statewide citizen assemblies on gun control could be a great way to start. That's a great suggestion. I like it. What about you, David? Do you have another suggestion? Well, I mean, that would have been top of my list also. I certainly think that given the size of your political system, uh, going statewide is probably the best way to go. And we are seeing really good examples in the state of Oregon, the citizen initiative review process, which feeds into the referendum or the plebiscites that follow and that that are held in that state where regular citizens are informing other citizens about the topics that they're about to vote on, or the experiments carried out in Stanford University by Jim Fishkin and his colleagues. Or indeed the the research efforts by Kevin Easterling and others where they actually work with members of Congress in running deliberative town hall processes. So instead of the regular town hall, random selections of citizens are, are in online town hall fora discussing things like gun control and coming forward with proposals that are, are informing those members of Congress. Excellent. So you both are political scientists and you essentially predicted the positive outcome of this. What brought you to here? How are you passionate about this issue? And what is your experience in leading up to this before you started We the Citizens? Well, we both have very different backgrounds. So my one first. I was originally a journalist in the UK and elsewhere. And then I was in Ireland. I was uh, economics editor at the Irish Times before I did a PhD, changed career and uh, became a political scientist. So I'd really seen from firsthand the kind of way that politics and policy making was done, the kind of way that vested interests were inside of the tent and the way that citizens' interests weren't. So I was very interested in kind of looking at that. My PhD was in that general area. And then in 2008, post the Great Recession, when we could see, as David said, the impact in Ireland was worse than a lot of places, partly due to the, the closeness of the government to um, to the construction industry and self-regulation in the finance industry and so on. Could really see the damage that this had done. So, yeah, I suppose that that's what motivated me. And in my case, I was coming of age as a political scientist in the late 1980s, which was when we had a deep recession in Ireland then. So I was looking for work in 1988, couldn't find any work and ended up moving to Britain. And I lived in Manchester for 21 years trying to get back to Ireland and finally got back in 2009 when we had the next recession. The fact that we were having these cycles of deep, deep crisis. And, you know, this was an even more deep one than the previous one. It was very instructive. This was the sort of sense where we have a deep crisis. We keep on having these crises. So let's not waste them. You know, let's use the opportunity, get the politicians when they're on their back foot and try and see if we can get something positive out of this. And this was what motivated myself and Jane and a few other colleagues. We started having cups of coffee. We started discussing, you know, the what if, what if we could try and run one of these ourselves. And, uh, you know, eventually we we got our way. Yeah, you sure did. And for fantastic effect. So you mentioned just now politicians. How does this process complement voting for elected representatives? Well, I think that's something that we're very strong about, that this is a, a bolster to representative democracy. There are some people who believe it to be 
an alternative, but that's not where we are at all. And in fact, in our first assembly, which included the debate on marriage equality, one third of the members were actually politicians. And I think having them in there made them really see the kind of the value of of these processes, made them see citizens in different ways. Some of the politicians who were in there have been the biggest cheerleaders for continuing it afterwards, which is absolutely great. So I think the thing is that representative democracy traditionally only allows you to have your say once every few years. You get the opportunity to, as the cliche goes, kick the rascals out. But in fact, we all know that parties have myriad policy options in front of them and people might only be voting on one or two. So this is a way to allow citizens to have a say on other policies, to have a say in between times. And also, I think most importantly, to make sure that their voice is listened to. This is a way to get the voice of the of the ordinary person into the policy making mix. Oh, yeah, that's terrific. So do you think it actually makes politicians more accountable then? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure if it makes them more accountable, but perhaps it makes them more informed because the accountability function in a democracy happens through the election process. Politicians have to face their electorates once every couple of years and they are held accountable to their electorates through that. A citizen's assembly or a deliberative mini public, as Jane was saying earlier on, is a bolt on. It's an addition to help in the process of policy making in between elections, giving citizens some voice in terms of how they want their politicians to take action on their behalf. So I think it's more helping the representative function rather than the accountability one. Last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I think the fact that we're seeing more and more of this, like we saw in France, for example, after the Gilets jaunes protests, the Macron initiated de Le Grand Debat. And while there was a lot of scepticism about how that worked, the kind of newer version now where they're discussing climate seems to be really well received. There's other processes ongoing in Belgium. And as David mentioned, in Edinburgh and in London, in Ireland, we have a few more. Canada's looking at quite a few at different levels. So I think it's really making people think about how can we actually go ahead, that there is a way to tackle the kind of problems that we're facing. But of course, it's not going to be any good on its own. Like There's an awful lot of stuff that needs to be done around the information environment apart from citizen assemblies. But the citizen assembly bit makes me helpful. I think that's right. I mean, for me, the important thing is to recognize that democracies need to innovate. They need to be continuously moving. We shouldn't be going on the basis of how democracies were run 100 or 200 years ago. And I think the citizens' assemblies, the deliberative mini-publics, help in, in at least two respects. They are providing the opportunity for reform because they're coming forward with ideas and they are influencing reform agendas. But I think also that they are helping the politicians to accept that citizens do need to have a voice and can be trusted to use their voice in a respectful, dignified, informed manner to help the system of d democracy operate in, in the 21st century. So I think it gives a, a lot of hope for the future of democracy. Fantastic. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight. Thank you for all the work that you do for democracy. Thank you. Thank you. What makes me most hopeful about the Citizens' Assembly is how successful it is on both sides, the citizens and the politicians. It made everyone feel better, less cynical about the politics and about each other.
This makes me really think about how things are right here in this country and how our political leaders should never condescend to us and assume that we are not sophisticated enough to understand the nuances of any issue. Imagine if we had a citizens' assembly of sorts right here in the U.S. Like they suggested, we could be using this to great effect on the gun reform debate. But even if we think about our most recent interview with Stephen Wertheim, just last week, who suggested that we democratize foreign policy. He was totally right that we can engage the American people in complex debate. The Irish example has shown us what's possible in augmenting our experience in a democratic society beyond voting, to participate in meaningful debate, help shape our public policy, and to be deep stakeholders in our civic life. Next week, our guest is Robert L. Tsai. He's professor of law at American University and the author of Practical Equality, Forging Justice in a Divided Nation. He wrote this book because he was thinking about what it takes to get equality and justice done in America. We'll be talking about why equality is important in a democratic society, how it relates to justice in the history of the law in the United States, and how fully exposing the indignity of inequality is an effective way to demand change. Well, equality is important in a democratic society because it, it sets some baselines. It tells us how people should be treated, what a citizen or a full member of the political community ought to be able to expect in terms of rights, in terms of their participation, in terms of the kind of respect that they should be able to get from others. Without that sort of baseline, it's really impossible where you can say with any sense of certainty that the policies you get reflect the broad sense of the community or even anything that approaches justice. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbu. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service.